Things that did happen that which were very sad and lead us to somewhere else and some things which were very cool indeed and to join me for this momentous occasion is mr john dealsdale of your steel chair wrestling magazine how are you sir i'm pretty good i bet the listeners were starting to rejoice at the fact they weren't going to have to hear me again but here i am to spoil the fun <laughs> no we always get positive reviews when you are here um, so this was on the 16th of July and it was at Nippon Budokan in front of 3,215 fans, which sounds like a lot of people until you realize the Nippon Budokan is a 14,000 seater arena. <laughs> this with COVID protocols still in effect. Yeah, it is, it is still with COVID protocols still in effect. So I would guess they probably could have sold 6,000 tickets if they were trying to fill it, which is not bad. We're still not at the, you know, Kawada versus Misawa stages of Noah yet. You know, um, but well, sorry, like all Japan was back in the day, and going to the Budokan and filling it every time—that that's not happening yet. But we're a lot closer than we were, say, two years ago, when they could barely barely fill a Churchill, never mind Budokan Hall. So things are on the up, and indeed up. Would you agree, John? Yeah, it's nice to see bigger crowds coming into play, and with the sort of reintroduction of like chants sort of on the horizon are coming into play in certain shows it's like we might finally be going back to normal yes i think so uh let's go to the opening match then which was hijimi hohara high 69 suji kondo and tadasuke of your congo and they defeated at sushi cottage daisuke harada extreme tiger and yohei in 11 minutes and 17 seconds as the hontai team took the loss but this was a bit of a cool little junior heavyweight opener what did you think of this one yeah, it sort of did what it says on the tin. You need something kind of explosive and energetic to open the show. So they put a lot of juniors in and were like, right, go and do your thing. And they were, well, reliably did so. Oh, and Shuji Kondo, who was just, you know, bulldozing everyone. <laughs> There's some of those of you regular long-time uh, Troopany Show uh, listeners will know of Shuji Kondo from his days in Wrestle One and in All Japan Pro. He's been around for a very long time. Recently joined Noah and then recently debuted for Congo, which is kind of a baby face a lot of the time, is a bit of a interesting fit. But then again, Congo aren't exactly heels either, are they? They're kind of tweeners, I guess. They just kind of decide what they're going to be on the day and it's like, right, we're going to be nice today, we're going to be nasty the next day. Oh, we want to piss these people off. Perfect, let's do it. <laughs> but Shuji, it was really a match to showcase Kondo for things that happened later in the card, um, for things to be announced later, and it worked really well. You know, they, they really got him over in this match, so it was awesome to see. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, eleven minutes and seventeen seconds, solid opening match to get yourself started. Uh, this is all pre-show, by the way. Anthony Green, El Hijo del Doctor Wagner. Rene Dupree and Simon Gotch and Stallion Rogers defeated Daike Inabi, Kazushi Sakuraba, Kenya Okada, Masaka Mochizuki, and Shuhei Taniguchi in 13 minutes and 29 seconds. Interesting to see Kazuchi Sakuraba branching out from Sigurigun. Um, and the Gaijin team had some serious heavy hitters in Noah history with Rene Dupree, who's kind of worked for Wrestle One in the past, his wrestle worked for All Japan in the past as a regular, and ended up in Noah. Um, and he's a good guy to get. He's a veteran. He's he knows wrestling inside and out. Tends to look after the youngsters when they're in Canada, as we later found out on the English commentary. Um, Doctor Wagon Junior, solid worker. Him and Danny Dupree are former GHC tag team champions. Um, Anthony Green and Stallion Rogers were nice to see. Anthony Green doing a, a nice debut in this particular arena. Um, and Simon Gotch is, you know, freaking Simon Gotch. We know how good he is. So yeah, 13 minutes and 29 seconds. This did not drag. I liked this a lot. What's your thoughts, John? Yeah, this was a, another fairly nice sort of high-energy tag bout with 
a lot of different personalities sort of clashing. I'm so happy Anthony Green's in Noah. Like, he deserves the world. He's so he held it down in the indies. He had the sort of lackluster WWE run because they didn't know what to do with him. And now, hopefully, the world <laughs> will accept him again because Green's just one of those, like, he's one of the most reliable people. Same with Simon Gotch. Same mm. with Rene Dupree and El Hito, Dr. Wagner Jr. And Stallion Rogers, once he doesn't make jokes. It's it's just, yeah, it was a really good sort of Gaijin team taking on a really stacked Hontai team. And just, oh, I still can't get used to Taniguchi. I want King Tani back. I miss Funky <laughs> Express. Where the, where the hell's Yone and Saito? I don't know. Like, this we, is the second show we've covered where they've not been here, and I don't like it. We were talking a lot about Saito the other week, and I can't remember why. Why we were talking about Saito. Because he was trained by uh, Mr. Aoyagi. That's why. He passed away. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, he was trained by Mr. Aoyagi and was a, a karate fighter before he was. And he was trained, he was in the... Oh, the faction with the Great Kabuki and um, Koshinaka in New Japan Pro Wrestling with Aoyagi and um, Mr. Matsunaga. Um, I know the faction. I can't remember the name. Something, something gun. <laughs> it's always something, something gun. Mm. Hensai gun. That was it. Hensai gun. Um, yeah, he was in that faction as a rookie, still banging in some 40 years later. Uh, or thirty years later, um, but yeah, it's um, yeah, it, it was it was perfectly fine. It kind of showed everybody off, and uh, yeah, it was cool. We can also celebrate the fact that like from the last show we covered, where there was the mysterious four v five tag match that the um the invisible <laughs> man is no longer in Noah. Yes, for the foreseeable future. We can talk about that later in the tag match he was supposed to be in. <laughs> it, it's so. Like we shouldn't laugh, but at the same time, it's so it's almost so dumb. guaranteed to happen. Almost guaranteed to happen. Something like if like it that happened happen. as actually reported, then it's the dumbest thing I have ever heard. Oh. By far, we're, we're building it up. We won't speak anything more about it till the tag team match. We'll talk about it then. But we have another talk about tag team match to talk about first. Eta and Katara Suzuki of your bird. Parasol Mal de Japon get there and then defeated Yoshinari Ogiori Ogawa and I mean Yuya Susumi in five minutes and thirty eight seconds, which wasn't so much a wrestling match as a thorough beating of the highest order. This was all about dominance and trying to get Ogawa's uh, a GHC Junior Heavyweight Tag Team Championships and Katara Suzuki and Ata really kind of. They didn't really bend the rules, but once they got an advantage, it was full court press, and they really went after Ogawa for a submission victory and just tried to knock him out, basically. This was ending careers kind of stuff. And so it was a bit of a dark turn for, let's face it, a Noah Jr. heavyweight division, which isn't exactly stable. <laughs> <laughs> this was just shenanigans, the match. It was it was murderous. Like, I love Aita. I loved yeah. him in Dragon Gate, and I'm glad that he sort of starting to really take off in Noah, and it's just fun watching him be himself, which is a dick. Just him being <laughs> a dick is like ultimate Ata, and again, we got more of that here, just with a more violent, sadistic edge. As you said, they were out to kill Agawa, and they basically succeeded. Yeah. It was, it was short, sweet, and to the point. And very... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was good. It was just solid. And it was like, it's getting to a point and telling the story. Suzuki and Ata want those tag team titles. They're already the Dragon Gate tag team champions. Um, so they want the they want those titles as well. To make themselves a fair claim of being the best junior heavyweight tag team in the world, which is not a bad shout, really. They're very, very good. Um, but it's kind of going about it in a different way than just being like FDR being like literally the best tag team in the world. They're kind of going about it in a trying to be, you know, the most dominant tag team in the world. So there's a nice little story to tell, which is a very Noah kind of story to tell, to be honest. Um, next up, we had Ninja Mac versus Dante Leon, 14 minutes and 24 seconds of the most indie, indie thing you can possibly imagine. <laughs> I've covered this match so many times in reviews. 
be it from GCW shows, local wrestling shows, like this feud is what put Ninja Mac on the map, and now it's nice to see he's bringing Dante Leon along with him. It is. I I'm still not convinced by the uh, Stardust Press, not Stardust Press, the um, Shooting Star Press cutter, because he seems to be stood there for an awfully long time waiting for things to happen. I think it's like yeah, it's just not a, my cup of tea. <laughs> in a future show, they made it make more sense by having like a tag partner hold the person in place. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but as a single person, it just it it. it takes you out the moment because it's like as my dad would have said we were just stood there waiting for somebody to hit him and that was basically what happened with it and i like ninja mac and i like dante leon i don't think there's anything wrong with either of them but i think maybe a little bit of starstruck just to be doing it in budican hall and maybe need a little bit more settlement before they do it again yeah i guess it's it was nice that they were put against each other, though, because, like, they've, as I said, they've danced this dance a fair few times. So if you're going to sort of pick a match to impress in, like, mm. a big place, this was the one to do it because they're really familiar with each other. They know how to work with each other. And mm. for the most part, outside of the, as you said, slightly stilted shooting star cutter, it worked pretty damn well and people seemed to be enjoying it. Yes, definitely. Um but let us move on. The next match was interesting. Masato Tanaka and Rob Van Dam defeated Nosawa Rongai and Super Crazy in 10 minutes and 46 seconds, essentially what was a trip down memory lane, which got 7.15 from the um, cage match users, which will tell you actually how technically good it was. I don't kind of see the point in having a hardcore match for the sake of having a hardcore match. It was just it just happened to be there. It was like, oh, there's two former ECW World Heavyweight Champions, and oh, we could put them together in a tag match, and oh, yeah, we've got Super Crazy in Paris them out. Oh, let's do that. When you know, so you still got two junior heavyweights going up against heavyweights, so there's only going to be one winner anyway. So it made it more predictable. But having said that, it was a trip down memory lane. But actually, these four are about as good as they were back in the late '90s. Now, because they've lost weight, the game ability for Let's be honest, they're all in the late 40s, early 50s, and they've all kind of athletically got better, which you would think was impossible. But Tanaka's done it by losing weight. Super Crazy's done it by being selective in what he does, even though he's put on weight. Wrong guy's still the same wrestler he was 20 years ago, and Rob Van Dam just does so much exercise and has taken long layoffs when he needed to take long layoffs, which has made him all the fitter. No, they expect like... you to sort of just say Rob Van Dam's just Rob Van Dam. We don't know what the fuck's going on. <laughs> no, but I think I think it, he's taken the Ricky Steamboat route of you don't have to wrestle all the time, so don't. If that makes sense. Yeah, it, it works too. Yeah, it does. Look at Ricky Steamboat. Ricky Steamboat in his sixties could probably run rings around most of the people on the Monday Night Raw roster now. And Rob Van Dam was just incredible yeah. in this. Yeah. Like, there was a line on commentary I loved where it was like a 51-year-old Rob Van Dam would kick 21-year-old Rob Van Dam's ass. And <laughs> it's pretty believable based on how 51-year-old Rob Van Dam is moving. Yeah. I, what did you think of the commentary? I'm going to ask this question because I, I mean, wasn't best I, pleased with it. Really? No. I mean, Stu's all right. It was the new guy. I'm not sure. Like, it didn't have cage match. Like, cage match didn't have common no. merits, which threw me off, because obviously I skipped through a lot of entrances and stuff yeah, and introductions yeah. and that for the sake of time, so... Yeah. No, I, I, I didn't like the way he he used insider terms in commentary, because he was talking about, well, there's this spot in this match. It's like, no, matches don't have spots. You're commentating on sports event. And he did that a couple of times. I'm just like, that's inexperience, but you need to stop it. I did like the guest commentators coming in a lot of the time. Like you had that was nice. Green there, you had Ninja yeah. Mac there, you had Rene Dupree there. It was just, they yeah, had, yeah. There was, <laughs> yeah, there was some nice sort yeah. of flaws to the English commentary, so that we didn't get bored of just the same two people talking. Which was nice presentation. I did like that, but their color guy needs to be a bit more professional. Yeah, it is just like don't talk about things in non-kayfabe terms. Do it in kayfabe terms because it you're taking the fans out at the moment. I realise that that it's not Monday Night Raw, 
most people who are watching now are, are inside bands, but that's not the point. You're trying to attract, you're trying to appeal to the widest possible audience. So appeal to the widest possible audience and don't use insider terms. That's the only thing that kind of I disliked about it. I mean, Stu's bombastic and that you can't help that. And he's good at what he does, but um, kind of missed Mark Pickering. I didn't think anything would make me miss Mark Pickering. <laughs> Um, yeah, not that Mark Pickering's bad, you know what I mean? He's just like, eh. so yeah, anywho. Um, I just I thought I would have preferred Mark Pickering because he kind of is a bit more on the ball with that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, and the new guy's voice, his delivery was nice, and it's nice to hear a different voice, but it just just stopped doing that. <laughs> but anyway, back to the match. What do you think of the match? Well, it's a hardcore tag match with two ECW slash fmw originals and two hardcore superstars so yes i loved this i just love i love plunderbouts i always will do and especially when it's people who know what they're doing alongside it so they know like when to turn it up a notch when to take it down a notch when to be sort of athletic when to just hit each other with weaponry <laughs> it, it was all really really well orchestrated for like an 11 minute hardcore match that came out of nowhere I was going to say, Rongo is the only person in this match to have not won an ECW championship. Give it time. I'm sure someone's going to resurrect ECW. <laughs> to buy it off of whoever runs WWE next and run it as a separate company. I won't pass Tony Khan buying ECW, the rights of ECW from WWE. <laughs> That's where we'll start trying to do his deathmatch project. Like, Possibly. I feel sorry for Eddie Kingston. Like... Every time he's in a death match, it goes like an AEW death match. It goes wrong somehow. Like the exploding one where it it, it just kind of fizzled out, and then yeah. just sort of the the sort of lack of finesse in the barbed wire one. Because <laughs> again, that's not necessarily on Kingston. I just don't think it's everyone communicates properly. Yeah, it's a. If you complicate stuff, it makes things harder. Is really yeah. the biggest thing. And when it's like, I'm not being funny. It's Chris Jericho and Eddie Kingston. They should be able to sort that out between them. They know what they're doing. <laughs> like Forty odd years of wrestling experience between the two of them. The main event everywhere they've been. Just, just let them go. You know, oh, just, to, just because I've never had a chance to address this properly. Mm. Anyone who sort of body shames Eddie Kingston or oh, yeah. a wrestler can go and fuck themselves into oblivion. Oh, that guy will do more for wrestling than any of your shitty takes will ever do. So I... shut the fuck up and watch wrestling. And also, look at this point. Wrestlers looked an awful lot more like Eddie Kingston 15 years ago than they did Kenny Omega. And that's no knock on Kenny Omega because Kenny Omega can shift money like no other wrestler alive. But so can Eddie Kingston. And if you look back at the wrestling history, would you say Dusty Rhodes doesn't look like a wrestler? Well, he looks like Eddie Kingston. Do you think Stan Hansen doesn't look like a wrestler? Because he looks like Eddie Kingston. Hell, if you look at Les Kellett in 1960s, he probably made more money on the British circuit than any other wrestler. He looks like Eddie Kingston. So don't tell me he don't look like a pro wrestler. Anywho. I just had um, to get that out there because I wanted to write that on Twitter days ago and then I thought, no, because I imagine telling a lot of people to go and fuck themselves will probably go back. No, you'd, you'd go, you'd be all right. Because that guy got buried long ago. But he's a Cornette fan, so he's going to think that. <laughs> and it's like, you know, because Cornette didn't like Kevin Owens and quite understandably, Kevin Owens didn't look like at the start when Kevin Owens was running Ring of Honor when you've got Eddie Edwards and Davey Richards looking like a million bucks all the time. Which is fair enough, but Kevin Owens was a star. He had it written all over him at the time and went on to prove that he's actually a star. Anywho. People seem to forget that wrestling's for everyone and not everyone's like a six foot odd muscle bound guy. Like a lot of us just look like regular people. So seeing wrestlers that look like regular people doing these inhuman things that, while still looking like regular people, shouldn't turn people off and it shouldn't yeah. be criticized because you're just appealing to another demographic yeah exactly that's the thing anywho let us move on go shizaki kazuchi fujita and takashiri sugiari sugira you're gonna get it right um <laughs> defeated the congo team of katsuyaki nakajima manubisoya and masakuti funaki 12 minutes and 59 seconds of 
the big hitters of Noah in a, a mixed tag, as in like not male and female, but um, Siguri Gun and Hontai, because Vegeta was Siguri. Oh, it was Siguri Gun, and now he's Hontai. And then, and then Siguri didn't get angry with him when he left. And oh, it's complicated. <laughs> I couldn't keep track of Noah factions anymore, so sometimes I'll just put on his show and be like, "Oh, they're there now." Okay. Oh, don't know when that happened, but I'll go with it. This was this was kind of just kind of a New Japan show from 1999, really. This match. <laughs> oh, I tell you what, watching Nakajima and Shiazaki just kick the shit out of each other was a well, kick and slug the shit out of each other was quite nightmarish. Well, they do that. So That's what they do now. <laughs> it was so loud. I was like, you can't even see anywhere that they're sort of pulling. Pulling it either, like no, usually no. there's a tell on how wrestlers make enough, like make the noise of them, and it's just a case of like I can't see it with like Nakajima does this thing where he'll kick and slap at the same time, so he's just double hitting you. Yeah, I but mean, yeah, it's this... a, I was gonna say, well, Go Shiozaki's got that little bit of scar tissue between his pecs, and that only comes from being chopped that hard that often. Yeah. You know, it just doesn't come from anything else. There's no like it's barbed wire accidents in his career. He's had straight wrestling matches up and down for 20 years. It's just that he's been hit that hard in his chest, it's actually turned into Kevlar. <laughs> so, it was such a dad violence match. It was. You know, Even though there wasn't, it wasn't a full match of dads because Nakajima, Soya, and Shiozaki. Uh, hmm. well, Shiozaki's 40. Yeah, but he's getting into dad's territory, but he's yeah. still a fairly vital dad. He's more of a benevolent uncle. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so, yeah. of course, you've got Vegeta being Vegeta, which is the best thing on the planet. Of course, indeed. Uh, but yeah, perfectly fine. Did what it said on the tin. Kind of kept everybody busy. Not an awful lot going on, except um, Shizaki and Nakajima still not liking one another that much. It's not full on hatred. There's a bit of mutual respect there, but they just they just don't like it. Uh, but let's just move on, shall we? Keito Kiyomiya defeated Kieji Muto. Let's me read that again. Keito Kiyomiya, that guy, defeated Kieji Muto in 26 minutes and 28 seconds. Anyone who thought this Muto's farewell lap uh, was going to be, um, you know, a bit of a glory ride, he's actually doing his favours on the way out. I'm good for him. Um, Keito Kiyomiya is a, just outstanding, and anything they can do to solidify him. He's been on a bit of a journey since the New Japan Noah crossover show at the beginning of the year, where he, he lost to Okada, well, was pinned by Okada, and Tanahashi and Okada kind of overlorded it over him in the match that he always wanted. And Muto was kind of, you know, along for the ride in that match. And it was a journey for get from there to here, and that's the story of this match, because Okada owned Kiyomiya in that particular match. And this is a story of growth. And the first thing he has to come across is Gage Muto. And Muto's on his final countdown. They played final countdown. Brian Danielson must have been so peeved. <laughs> they, got the, they got the money for final countdown. Because I, I know he wanted it for his own theme in AEW, but they went with the one they currently have. I think the thing that cracked me up was that they had it sort of cut into, like, um, Muto's actual theme. And yeah. And it worked perfectly. <laughs> it does. It was a nice bit of mixing there. Whoever did that, you're a genius, sir, or mom. Uh, yeah, Kate, but this, I, I watched the match that he, these two had last year for the Global Orange Crown when me and Dara did the Muto retrospective last week. And this is an entirely different match. And it's like Kiyomiya's entirely different wrestler. You know, it's just... He's got more poise, he's got more presence, he knows how to put things together. He knew where to go after Muto, which is his knees, because Muto has no knees. They've literally been replaced twice. That's the reason why he's retiring, so it was the obvious thing to do, and he played it like a fiddle. It was beautiful to watch, and it told a massive narrative of growth as far as Kiyomi was concerned. It was just stunning, just thoroughly enjoyed it. Absolutely great wrestling. What do you think of it, John? Yeah, I was really impressed. Like, as you said, it's it's sort of easy to look at the sort of Muto farewell run and think it's going to be some sort of masturbatory celebration of himself, and it's not. He's actually putting people off. <laughs> as you said, yeah, this this was like a far cry from their last bout. 
and Kiyomiya just again looks like a star. We're seeing the supernova come back into play. And yeah, I I still respect what Muto does because he knows his age, he knows his weaknesses, and he always sort of bases his match around them. Like ever, ever since he won the title, he's played it smart, and this was another sort of playing it smart match to get sort of maximum impact from mm. minimum damage. And of course, yeah, twenty six minutes is no mean feat. Sorry, is no small feat. No, that's it for a guy and, with no knees. And to keep everyone interested that long, yeah, with a lot of just pure submission work, is yeah, quite quite the testament. I think he was in a figure four for at least seven minutes of this match, you know, and he <laughs> milked it for everything it was worth. He got absolutely 100% out of it. But it, it, And it's like, you watch this match and then you watch Tanahashi <laughs> and you go, oh, that's where Tana got it from. Because <laughs> I was watching Tana at Forbidden Door and when he's, he was in that bulldog choke and he just left it on, like Moxley just left it on. You could tell Tanner was telling him to leave it on. Just get, let, let's get the crowd going. The crowd were absolutely into it. And this is what, you know, he gets it from Muto. Muto is the absolute master of milking everything he possibly can out of an audience. And yeah, he'd have stayed in that all night if he thought it, the crowd would be on the edge of their seats. You know, and yeah, no, just genius. He is a wrestling genius. There are very few bona fide wrestling geniuses down in history. I think he's one. You know, um, the obvious ones, Miami Toyota is an obvious one. Um, you know, that Chris level Hero. of wrestling purity. Sorry, Karen. Chris Hero. Chris Hero, yeah, I would say He's so. Gone into the wrestling genius category. If you were, uh, I would also say Mark Rocco and Marty Jones were yeah, wrestling exactly. geniuses. And um, Tiger Mask as well, and Dynamite. Dynamite kind of evolved stuff. He, he did come up with stuff, some stuff he went with too far with. So it's hard to call him a genius considering the amount of injuries he got. But, you know, Rocco and Jones, they were wrestling geniuses. They pushed things further forward. Toyota and Hokuto, and they pushed things further forward. Muto's definitely pushed things onto another level. And if you want to go back and find out how he did it, you can listen to me and Dara talking about uh, his entire career from last week's show. And it's nice to get Dara to do it because Dara. All we knew is American stuff. And like he's a big WCW fan. So he was like, ah, oh, WCW 989, that's ace. So he's dead enthusiastic. So you could go listen to that. It's really cool. It's just, this is a really positive sign because originally I was worried about this sort of farewell to where it's going to be he gets win, gets win, gets win, gets win, yeah, loses yeah, yeah. last match. But just the amount of effort put into this match, the opponent, the story, everything there just reminds you that KG Muto isn't some self-interested arsehole looking for one last glory. He genuinely put on an incredible match and is actually helping put over the younger generation. I, I think for now. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, a lot back at we looked at back at that retrospective, and I think about it, like he wrestled Great Kabuki in '94 when Kabuki was really right at the end of his productive time as a star in New Japan Pro Wrestling and it could have been a mess but Kabuki had enough presence to make it work but they murdered each other like bleeding buckets I have covered that Noro Arbaya match it wasn't wasn't, this was just for New Japan it was just a regular straight up match for the IWGP World Heavyweight Championship and they murdered each other but I can see the effort that Kabuki had to put in to make that match work, considering his age and, you know, his status within the company because he was an upper mid-carder. He wasn't really supposed to get it. But the whole idea of the great Kabuki versus the great Muta was too good to pass up even for New Japan at the time. And you kind of, like, see the way Kabuki had a, an effect on Muto's career, not just as a wrestler, but the way he holds himself as a wrestler in the business. And I think that kind of had an influence on this run, if you see what I mean. It definitely feels like it's influenced it to some degree. And you need to watch that match because it's like the the final promo is Kabuki in English picks the microphone up because he gets disqualified. He picks the microphone up and he goes, ah, oh, my son, next time I'm going to kill you. <laughs> I think the only Muta Kabuki match I've seen is the Noro Barbed Wire one. Oh, was- 
a rare sight in New Japan. Yes, definitely. But you can go and watch that one. It maybe was the precursor to get you to that one, to be honest. There's a full playlist. We did a full playlist. You can go back and find it on there. Anyway, shall we move on to discuss the fun, the fun topic of the day? <laughs> <laughs> now, the GHC Tag Team Champions were Masakitamiya, unfortunately tagging with Michael Elgin, who had to, pardon me, who missed this show, and it was unannounced by Noah. That's why he missed this show. But those of you who know that listened to the Trooping Show last week will know why, or have been alive for the last seven days watching people on Twitter gut laughing at the entire predicament Michael Elgin has got himself into, which was that he stole some protein from a shop and was arrested for shoplifting, which is a bit more serious in Japan than it is in Canada, and is currently awaiting trial. Uh, they can hold you for 26 days in Japan without seeing a lawyer. I'd like to point that out. I found that out as I was looking up Japanese law the other day. That was really interesting. So we'll see what happens there. But the likelihood is he probably will never wrestle for Noah or any other Japanese promotion again, because once you've got a criminal record, it's very hard to get a visa unless they really, really want you badly. Like MVP had to have a very special visa because obviously he's a convicted armed robber and had a very strong criminal background. Um, and when he reformed himself and became a pro wrestler, uh, WWE and New Japan Pro Wrestling did pop for a very expensive visa waiver form, uh, which is what uh, anyone will have to do with Elgin, which makes you beg the question, is it really worth the effort? I just John. love the fact that it was fucking protein powder. Of all the things to fucking steal. <laughs> Does he, you'd think you'd bring your own supply with you. Oh, you know, there's, there's plenty of places to buy it from where it won't be as that expensive but no you decide to shoplift it in a foreign country that you're working in which has very strict laws and strict traditions around manners and you just i don't get the thought process at all um looking at this a tub of diesel two pound tub of diesel whey protein will cost you 36 dollars and 97 cents in a canadian walmart <laughs> just thought I'd mention that he got arrested over 40 Canadian dollars worth of protein <sighs> I just love how he, he talks to Twitter like oh I haven't been arrested I didn't steal protein powder and everyone sort of just doesn't believe it it's of, course, like... yeah, of course yes because it's the same thing he did like two years ago when it came to sexual assault Yep. and that's the reason why he got let go by Impact Wrestling there is no way he'd get like Outside of the shindies, I really don't think he's going to get much work anymore. No, he has indeed shot himself in the foot again. Like Japan was your chance to begin again because they don't seem to give a shit about your uh, sordid past. Or what Western fans think, apparently. But <laughs> And then you go and shoplift. Like, well fucking done, you actual genius. And as David Bixenspan pointed out on Twitter, he went back and found the uh, G1 press conference from 2020, which Elgin was in. Was it 2020 or 2019? Where Jeff Cobb accused uh, Michael Elgin because he stood up and he said, the only thing you're stealing... Elgin said he was going to steal all the shows and Jeff Cobb went on the microphone and said, the only thing you're stealing is protein powder. It's like... Um, Apparently the entire United Empire has been clowning him at the moment. Well, of course, because no one likes Elgin. (laughs) <laughs> wrestlers don't like Elgin they just don't not, no one's a particular fan of his it's because he's he's either up his own ass or sexually assaulting people it's like well yeah it's... but he, he, even when he was tagging with in the state when he was in New Japan they used to stick him in a tag team with the Viking Raiders as they are now and um, they absolutely hated his guts and they would walk away from the ring going for Michael Elgin to cameras and leave him there in the ring because they were like sick of the sight of him. Couldn't stand him. Can we <laughs> talk about was... something more positive? Indeed we can. Um, <laughs> but yeah, well, I mean, the, the idea that Elgin's never going to wrestle again for a major organisation, that's pretty, pretty positive. positive. So let's take that as the takeaway. Mm-hmm. Anywho, to replace him... They got a pretty handy replacement, but far better wrestler, Yoshiki Enomura to tag team with Kisiyama. And this match was for the vacant uh, GHC tag team titles, which were won by Hideki Suzuki and Timothy Thatcher, the former WWE uh, performance center wrestlers, uh, oh, sorry, trainers, went on to become 
the GHC Tag Team Champions within eight months of them leaving WWE. Uh, showing there is life on the old dog's legs. Though Thatcher and Thatcher isn't that old. He just looks that old. Thatcher looks to be about 50, when he's actually only 39. <laughs> and Suzuki actually looks like he's 41, because he's 41. But they are a phenomenal wrestling tag team. And when I mean wrestling tag team, I mean a proper wrestling tag team. Billy Robinson students, they look like they just walked out of a gym in Wigan. So, yeah, this was lots of fun, if you like your grappling. Um, and Suzuki's just on another planet good. I always liked Thatcher, but Suzuki is so good. And I never really had a chance to watch him because when I got into like Japanese wrestling company that he worked for, he'd gone to WWE to train. So, yes, this is outstanding work from both teams. I like Kitamira a lot and I like Inamura a lot. I like Kitamira not now he, now he doesn't have to tag with the moron. John, your thoughts? Yeah, this, this is what I want from a Noah tag team division. I don't want Big Mike and his big thefts. I want bloody <laughs> grapplers and monsters wrestling each other in an absolute masterclass of technical wrestling. Like, Hideki Suzuki is incredible. Timothy Thatcher is incredible. Kitamiya and Inamura are great at what they do. It's just, it was a great match. Like, this, it's one of those ones where you could write essays about just how good it is to see Suzuki and Thatcher in their natural element again, but, like, just watch it. There's a two-week free, free trial on Wrestle Universe. Just If hearing Hideki Suzuki and Timothy Thatcher teaming together again makes your mouth water, there you go. Go watch the show. See for yourself. <laughs> Uh, let's move on to the junior heavyweight tag team or singles or singles championship. The champion Hayata successfully defending against Siki Yoshiako. Uh, Yoshiaka, I do apologize. 20 minutes and 45 seconds, thunderous junior heavyweight match. I enjoyed this a lot. Uh, flowed really nicely. Hayata is such a good ring general. He really bossed this match. And Siki is just, just doing a good job. I like him as a wrestler. I, I think... The junior heavyweight division is just all over the place a lot of the time. It's kind of the signature of the division, and they don't settle down enough. But this kind of match just goes like goes to show how good they are as wrestlers, and it, it was a brilliantly well told story. And you know, it's not all high flying necessarily. There's a lot of mix and match and trying to do different things, and there was a lot of psychology and storytelling in this match. And yeah, it was really good. I really enjoyed it, and I hope to see more of them. I hope these two go again. But there was a challenger at the end of the match, which we'll talk about in a second. After John's telling me what he thinks of this match. Yeah, I think you worded it brilliantly. It was just a nice example of what the Noah Junior Division is capable of. Hayata's been pretty damn good with, during his title reign when he gets the time to have proper matches. And Yoshioka just made for a perfect challenger. Like, the history between them sort of gave us this story of, well, I used to be friends with you, but now I want your title. And, yeah. Just, yeah. What more can you say? Yeah, there you go. Just does what it says on the tin. Have a great wrestling match. It's going to be awesome. And then after the match, Shuji Kondo came down to challenge Hayata for the GHC Junior Heavyweight Championship, a title he's held before back in 2013. He was making his first stab back at it since he's joined the company as a NOAA regular. I think he probably was working for somebody else when he had been all Japan, I think, when he when he won for the when chat won the championship. But this is his first time on the roster and his first time as a member of Congo. So yeah, what do you think of him as a challenger? That is going to be an interesting match. Yes, Kondo doesn't really look like a junior heavyweight. He is just a hundred kilos. He doesn't wrestle <laughs> like one either, though. No, he doesn't. That's the Considering trouble. Considering he he entirely brute forces his way through matches. It's going to be very interesting to watch Hayata try and deal with that. <laughs> hmm. then... like, I can deal with the fast guys. I can deal with the flippy guys. Oh, my God. I've just had my head taken off by the 30th lariat of this match. Yes. Shit. Oh, being press slammed again and again and again. Oh, and he can also fly as well, so he can land on top of me. Oh. Yes, Suji Kondo is an athlete's athlete. You really need to see him in person. In fact, to be honest with you, I think, I don't know why he hasn't got further. Like, you know, that what he can do with his body for the size of what his body is, 
he should really be like boss for junior heavyweight division for a very long time and he's never really caught on anywhere long enough. I suppose he didn't wrestle one. But, you know, Wrestle One didn't really get the international coverage that other companies did at the time. I miss Wrestle One. It was good. Anyway, let's get to the main event. The current champion, Satoshi Kojima, unsuccessfully defended the GHC Heavyweight Championship against Keno, making him, I believe, the two-time GHC Heavyweight Champion. 28 minutes and 17 seconds of a thunderous match between two exceptional professional wrestlers. This one got 7.93 from the cage match users which is not half bad when you think about the fact Satoshi Kojima two years ago was curtain jerking, let's be honest. And him and Tenzan just did a World Tag League, which was barely a dishonorable discharge. But within whilst doing that, he went to America, had one of the stole the show in AEW against John Moxley. Um, and then, you know, absolute bangers with people all over Japan uh, and in North America, and then he's come back to really because he's the only person that could do the four championship win of Muto, kind of, and as a protege of Muto. That what I'm talking about is there's only one person who's won the Global Honor Crown, the Triple Crown, uh, the IWGP Heavyweight Championship, and the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. The four titles that actually mean the most in Japanese wrestling historically. And Kojima was the only person left who could do it. Tenzan could, I suppose, but we're not getting Hiroshi Tension. I'm going to crack at the GHC Heavyweight Championship any time within the next decade. Because I love me some Hiro- Hiroshi Tenzan, but he can't go 28 minutes against, like, you know, Keno or Goshizaki or anyone at this particular point in time. Bless his cotton socks. He tries very hard, but one of his thoughts pointing in the wrong direction. So it's not going to be him. So it was going to be Satoshi Kojima, um, who has won the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. Actually, had a really good year representing the NWA as World Heavyweight Champion. Um, and it, it Keno was kind of the obvious choice as the anti-everything guy uh, that Noah have on tap to just hate and destroy things. And this turned out to be quite lovely. I thoroughly enjoyed this match. It was a good story. Kojima has not worked this hard in many years, and it showed. And that makes it all remarkable, because he blew up about 15 minutes in, and you don't see that very often from any Japanese wrestler, because Kojima's like really well-conditioned, but Keno dragged him around the ring, and it made him work really, really hard. But he did actually blow up about 15 minutes in, which is remarkable at the pace that they were going at. But it didn't ruin the match, and it didn't detract from the match, because Kojima had figured out how to catch his breath and make it look great. <laughs> What's your thoughts on this one, John? Yeah, it's it's great to see this sort of last, like, this big hurrah for Kojima. Because as someone who's sort of, like, he's worked around the world. He's represented so many companies, done so many things. And I know we always rag on about, like, Noah sort of being an old guy's company when it comes to belts. It was nice to see him hold that title, even if it was only for a short time. Because, as you said, it it completed the trifecta. And it sort of added an air of shock to the Noah title scene before sort of passing it back to a traditional champ like Keno. And yeah, the match itself was bloody cool. It was very painful. (laughs) But (laughs) I don't think it could have been anything less between these two. They only know one sort of speed and it's a 100%. Yeah. even, Even after winning the title, Keno is still just full of hate. (laughs) <laughs> he did give an after show uh, promo where he did say you've taught me an awful lot and I've got to say I enjoyed it just a little bit <laughs> my favourite line was I'm the champ now but I'm still disappointed in Noah <laughs> like, the quality isn't here I'm going to change that yes but he, did, he also did say that Noah isn't the place where where New Japan retirees come for easy matches, which is fair enough. Um, but Kojima's a little bit better than that. Because obviously Keno's going to say that, because he's a dick. <laughs> I just want there to be this funny moment where, like, um, Sanjiro Takagi tries to challenge for the Noah heavyweight title and <laughs> slaps him or something. I don't know. I mean, he might refuse to wrestle people from outside the promotion. That'd be interesting to see, actually. 
I don't know. I don't know how you can make it more. I don't know how you can make it more interesting. How you... So far, you can go with xenophobia. Oh, you... oh, I don't know. <laughs> Oz Academy is entirely built around xenophobia. The like, not like actual racism. We're talking about like you know within the company things like Oz Academy. Uh, Hontai and Oz Academy are all the bad guys because Oz Academy works the exact opposite of all the wrestling companies. And you had to be part of the Hontai team to get a crack at the title. So people turned heel just to get a crack at the title. <laughs> um, and, you know, they contractually obliged themselves to Hontai just to get a championship match. So they, had to get, so they looked miserable while they were attacking people. It's going to be interesting to see how long Keno holds the belt. Just because of like the nature of that sort of title at the moment is pretty short reigns. Yeah, I would think though they're kind of. I mean, the obvious thing is Nakajima, and the, there's a couple of other obvious challenges. I suppose you know, um, her with Kitty Arm, Kitamiya losing today, that frees him up for a singles run, which he really should have got after winning that uh, cage match with Nakajima. You know, you could have set his sights because he left Congo and never really had any resolution to it. He just kind of left Congo, um, where he could have, like, you know, they could have made more of that and they could build that back up again. There's there's options with Keno that they don't have with anybody else, I think. And plus, Keno's their biggest star, easily, you know, in the sense of, like, marketability. Yeah, he's the sort of one you recognise the most. Yeah. Even if it's usually because he's either murdered someone or told someone he hates them. Yeah, but it's, there's more potential with him. Like, I love Nakajima, but you can't imagine him being a great watch sometimes for, like, casual fans, if you see what I mean. Like, you know, he, he's, a, he's a wrestling fans wrestler, whereas Keno's got more character to him, more build to him, I think. I love Nakajima. I love Go Shizaki. I love all of them, but the I think Kano is probably the outstanding character-based wrestler out of all of them. And it's such a simple idea. Be miserable, hate everyone. <laughs> and it's hey, like, you just got the champion. Why are you frowning? I hate everything. <laughs> what do you mean? But you're the champion. I hate everything. <laughs> That's it. I, it was, um, oh, it was, a, it was a punk band. I can't remember the name now. Uh, Sick of it all. That's it. And their first single was Disco sucks, fuck everything. And that's <laughs> Keno. You know, that's he was like the lead singer of Sick of It All was I was listening to the Leeds Festival one day and he said, I wrote this song when I was 15 year old in my bedroom. Disco sucks, fuck everything. And the rest of it poured out. And that's what Keno is. He's that. You know, he just he's punk rock, has a punk rock theme tune, has a punk rock haircut, is a punk rock wrestler in the in the California nineties punk sense, not the Sex Pistols Clash sense. You know, he is as punk as it comes. And this, he wears a red suit. Well, there's nothing wrong with wearing a suit. If you can be punk wearing a suit, but he is a punk rock wrestler in the attitude and the nihilism of it all, if you see what I mean. Mm. I mean, but the, like his attitude of like single minded greatness and stuff kind of fits in with that theme tune as well. But it's good. I like him a lot. And I think he's going to do good things as champion. But I do think he's going to stay. I won't be surprised that big New Year's show that they run that they ran last year at Budicon. I think he'll keep the championship till then. Would be my guess. That would be the logical way to do it. Yeah, just because the the wrestling press is on you at that particular point. You know, you can build up with a big match with Nakajima or Goshizaki or or even Inamura or Kiyomiya. You know, there's there's options there. Um, and it is just because New Japan's the big deal and they're running Tokyo Dome, so get as much out of it as you possibly can. When wrestling's hot, when one company's hot, wrestling's hot. That's it. People enjoy going to see wrestling if it's hot, if it's popular. Doesn't matter who's presenting it, they'll go see you. They used to find that in like WrestleMania season, even WCW would do well because wrestling was hot. No, because WCW was hot, it's just that wrestling was hot. But anyway, what was your thoughts overall on the show? Yeah, I, I was, um, I always enjoy watching Noah. It's, 
I don't get to watch it as often as I'd like to, mainly because I'm always busy, but just seeing shows like this, where the quality is pretty consistent throughout, there's a bit of variety here, you get hardcore dad violence juniors, and then <laughs> they always knock it out in the title scene. It's it's sad Kojima's run wasn't longer, just because I really like Kojima, but to see them sort of hand it off to someone who you know is going to be dependable, who is still relatively young by comparison to the rest of the roster, mm. it's pretty. It's a pretty good sign for the future. Yeah, definitely. I think so, for sure. Well, there we have it. Well, thank you for listening to the Troopany show today. My name's James Troopany, but John, where can we find you on the internet, sir? You can find me at John Deathman on Twitter. That is the gateway to hell that leads you to my writings, my ramblings, my photos from when I occasionally go to deathmatch shows and avoid sunburn. <laughs> Tell you what, being being at a four-hour deathmatch show under the blazing sun was both enjoyable and very... Oh, I don't know, the heat's just not fun. Brits aren't built for summertime, especially when it's a heat wave. I don't know, I went to Cleethorpes yesterday and there was a lot of beach goths around. Uh, I was just happy because there was no wrestling fans with beer bellies walking around with their shirts off. No, Everybody's... yeah, there was a bit of that. There's, there's always going to be a bit of that in Cleethorpes. That's the, that's the price you pay for being in Cleethorpes. <laughs> but yeah, I have ICW reviews coming out soon. We just recently published a interview with Casey Kirk that me and fellow steel chair writer Steph Francom conducted. Mm-hmm. So yeah, plenty of stuff to enjoy over at Steel Chair. And Indeed. I, uh, you can also find plenty of stuff to enjoy on the Troopany Show channel this week. Just to give you an idea of the flavour of the things that have been gone on on the Troopany Show channel this week, we've had, of course, three today at New Japan, uh, New Japan G1 Climax 32, where all sorts of things are going to happen. We've got a new one that I'm going to put up tonight from today's show, which was incredible. It was really, really good. Um, we've, of course, um, brilliantly, Dara and Martin of the Wrestling Rewind did a podcast on Friday night just as the news that uh, Vince McMahon had retired uh, came out. And they did an in-depth on that, which is really cool and interesting. With a lot of jokes, as you mentioned, because it's Dara and Martin. But yeah, it, it's been an interesting week on the Trooping Show and in wrestling in general. You may notice that me and John are really not that bothered that Vince McMahon's retired. It's like, all right, then. fair enough. Uh, probably because of the sexual assault allegations more than actually him retiring. I think he'd still be there. Um, but yeah, um, and you know, you can you you have to imagine how fruity things are now that Vince McMahon is no longer there. Michael Cole actually started mentioning Ring of Honor and New Japan Pro Wrestling on SmackDown on Thursday night or Friday night, I should say. Uh, believe it or not, he is now free to roam uh, with, already... without Vince McMahon in his ear. I'd already forgotten about the Vince stuff because it happened. It drove us all mad for a night because we were waiting to see which, like, play the sort of wrestling media bingo game where it's like, how how badly are they going to bootlick this? And then it's kind of just like, WWE is probably going to still be WWE regardless of who's sort of at the king of the castle. Would I like to see them improve? Of course I do. Is it too late for me to get invested in them again? Probably. I think you're not going to see big change until Kevin Dunn goes. Because no matter how you cut it, the guy that cuts the show, show is the guy that's really in charge of how it's going to look. And until he goes, which might not be very long, given that all of his major supporters no longer work there, um, I think given what we know, I think that's when the show will actually start to improve because it will be less bah! and more watchable um, just from like calming people down for a start. It is amazing. Like AEW's production team are all ex-WWE people, but given their own way of doing things, the show is a lot calmer, better presented and, and just like less erratic and not got 52 cuts per a minute in it. Which is, you know, and if people think I'm, North, yeah. yeah, if people think I'm lying about that, it's absolutely not true. I watched a match, the Ronda Rousey versus Liv Morgan match from the Thing the other day, which was like the whole match was on Twitter. It was less than a minute long and it had 26 cuts in it. 
So, you know, it's like a cut every two seconds. You do not need to do that for a match that involves literally an ankle lock and roll up. That's all there was. There was nothing else. It was an ankle lock and roll up. And 26 cuts do not require for that mess. So, <laughs> but we shall see. And of course, the wider problem is, of course, Vince McMahon's been accused of sexual assault. And Bixen's found that right. Did Bix, David did the other day when he said, the wrestling press has been hammering at Vince for years. Wall Street Journal did two stories and he's had to retire. Which will tell you how much sway we as wrestling journalists really have in the real politics of world wrestling. But there you go. I just think it's kind of sad to see so many people like trying to like go to bat for Vince. It's like, oh, but wrestling wouldn't be where it is without Vince. It's like, who cares? Like, at the end of the day, this isn't him retiring in glory. It's him retiring in disgrace because if he doesn't, he's probably going to go to jail. Yeah. It's like you can respect what someone's done and still admit they're an arsehole. Like, yeah, this is fine. And to be honest, if it weren't Vince, it would have been Fritz von Eric or it would have been Bill Watts. Someone would have done it. And they probably would have got Hogan to do it because he was the biggest, most recognizable rising star. But one of them had gone national. And if it weren't for what, if it weren't for McMahon, Watts would have done it. And Watts would have made it work. Like WWE just... isn't the gold mine everyone pretends it is. Hmm. It's the biggest company, but that's because it's always been the biggest company because he bought out all the other companies to get rid of competition. Like, it's only because we've seen, like, the Indies take off, the Japanese scene kick into another gear, companies like AEW, that things have improved. Because guess what? When you're not the king of the castle anymore, oh, sorry, when your castle's under siege, you've got to improve. Yeah. And I also also point out, it wasn't always the biggest company. If you look at the stretch from 93 to 96... New Japan Pro Wrestling were putting 50,000 into the Tokyo Dome every three months, and all Japan Pro Wrestling were taking million-dollar gates at the Budokan Hall once a month with no pay-per-views, all cash, and merch on top of that. They were making money hand over fist compared to Vince McMahon without the on-cost because they didn't have to travel as far. So they weren't the biggest promotion in the world for quite some time, to be honest with you. Things dropped off in the late 90s when they saturated the market. But, you know... They weren't always the top dog make everyone makes them out to be. They were, and, and the reason why, because that product between 93 and 96 was bloody awful. So, yeah, I think my only real sort of thing to the Vince retirement is just good fucking riddance. <laughs> He's not a pleasant human being. <laughs> Overall, it, yeah, you've had an incredible career and you've done incredible things, but you're awful. That's the bottom line. He's awful. He is. And arguably, to be the wrestling promoter of that era, you had to be fairly awful, you know, to get by. Because there were other awful things that wrestling promoters did. I'm not saying he was the only one. There were others who did awful, awful things. Um, Yeah, but he continued being awful past the point he needed to be awful. Yes, and some of the people who were also awful, he hired to be awful for him. (laughs) It's like some of the accounts you read now, you just like... Man, I wish people had the balls to do something about it a lot sooner. Well, they did, but who would have... There is the other thing that protected him as well. It's just wrestling. Is another thing that protected him as well. It doesn't matter. It's just wrestling. It's not a real sport. If, I don't know, the owner of the New York Yankees, if, if George Steinbrenner in the 1980s had done the thing Vince had done, as far as sexual assaults, allegations, and things like that, because he'd been hung, uh, he'd been hung from Times Square. You know, he would really have had a hard time like continuing, even back then. Whereas it's Vince, it just doesn't matter because it's Vince because it's wrestling, so therefore it doesn't really matter. And a lot of that's protected him for a long time. It still made me cringe that he came out after the first like allegation to put this smarmy little promo, and people were fucking bowing down. It's just like. Oh my God! Can you lick boot harder? Of course, Jen. But you—you've seen what Boris Johnson's done in the last two weeks, and it's exactly the same thing. You know, it is just like you've got half the Conservative Party saying we missed Boris and we think he was great, but yeah, but your parliamentary party just kicked him out because he was inept and oh, corrupt. No. You know, he's accused of being political again. Yeah, well, I don't care. Because <laughs> he was it, it, that wasn't really being political because, like, it's just like you know. All those people that stood up and gave him a round of applause, the majority of him 
booted him out two weeks ago when we were waiting for him to get rid of him. But they give him a round of applause anyway. And it's like, because it's like, why? Like, he is literally the least popular British Prime Minister of the last 50 years now. Because when you've already won, it doesn't matter what the fuck you do anymore. Exactly. That's the trouble. And that's the trouble with politics in general in the both in many places around the world, not just here. But let us not talk politics. Let us think of how the bright future of the WWE might have without the McMahons being quite so in charge. Anyway, thank you for listening to the Drupany Show. We'll see you next week. Bye. <laughs>